Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. A few years ago, I had to say goodbye and put my dog Patrick down, which was horrific. It was one of the hardest things emotionally that I've had to go through. And that dog, I mean, I had him for 11 years. It was a really, really difficult time. And I remember I got a little bit lazy with my business finances and I had to go back through a lot of old credit card statements and my bank accounts and just compile a lot of that data. And as I was doing that, I started to see a paper trail of everything leading up to losing him. And I remember it was so hard that there were a few times where it was still very fresh for me. So I I had to just push pause and I had to wait a week in between compiling all that data because it was so triggering to see all of that information in front of me. It was really, really hard to go through. And that's kind of when I started to realize that for a lot of us, we don't necessarily avoid our finances because we want to. It's because sometimes it really brings up a lot of unhealed trauma. That's why I was so excited to talk with today's guest, Laura Parr. If you have never met Laura before, she is such an incredible woman that I'm really excited to introduce you guys to. Seriously, she's the best. She's one of my coaching clients. We've gotten to know each other for a while now, and I've just seen her grow and thrive and heal and go through crap and come out ahead and even stronger. She is definitely one of the strongest people I know. There's very few people I come across where I'm like, damn, they got it together but Laura really does. She's a really incredible person. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a sales professional in aviation, which I didn't realize this, but I've learned from her as well that it is a very male-dominated field and being in sales, that tends to be as well. So it's really fun to hear her experiences and how she is really thriving in aviation. She has an incredible story of healing childhood trauma and is definitely an open book on all things divorce, love, and loss. Laura is a mental health advocate and is very passionate about discussing the often undiscussed connection between mental health and how that can truly affect your finances. In this episode, we cover a ton of ground. We talk about cultural differences between Colombia and the United States. Laura grew up in Colombia. We talk about her really brave move of moving to the U.S. on her own. At like 18 years old, I can't even imagine that would have scared the crap out of me to move to another country where I don't know a single person. That would just freak me out so much. We also talk about dealing with really heavy mental health issues and how that can affect each of us so differently and how you can actually use language to help become an advocate for people with mental health issues as well. We discuss paying off debt using what Laura calls the emotional debt snowball. If you have ever looked at the debt snowball or debt avalanche and neither one of those really resonate with you, I think the emotional debt snowball will absolutely be what you need to pursue. We also discuss how Laura began to heal past trauma through personal finance. This is really interesting. I don't know if many people have thought about this, but the way that Laura used her financial life really did help her have the courage to heal previous trauma. We also talk about finding a deeper purpose with money through giving back and volunteer trips. This just melts my heart. I think Laura is such an amazing person. I would love, love, love for you guys to go say hi to her on Instagram as well. It's linked in the show notes, so you can definitely just go say hi. What I do want to do before we dive into this content is give a quick disclaimer. This episode, we discuss really tough subjects regarding mental health. We talk about loss of a child, eating disorders, and other topics that might be triggering for some. 
So please use some discretion when you're listening to this. And if you have to fast forward or you have to take a break, I totally understand that this may not be the episode for you. All right, guys, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with my friend and coaching client, Laura Parr. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I am so excited today to be joined by one of my coaching clients and friends, Miss Laura. Laura, thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you for having me. I am stoked to chat with you because we have gotten to know each other for quite some time and I've learned a lot about Mm -hmm. you and your money story and your just your skill with getting self-awareness, I would say, is what I'm most impressed by. And so I'm just really excited to to chat with you and pick your brain with somebody who's a quote unquote real person and learn from you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, sometimes sometimes I feel like I'm very self-aware. You are. And but it's nice when other people say that because it's reassuring to me. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Okay. Tell everybody a little bit about you as a person today, like what does your life look like? What do you do for work? Like give us some context into who you are today. So I'm a single mom. I have an eight-year-old son who is my favorite human on the entire universe. His name is Frederick. I live in Atlanta, Georgia or close to Atlanta, Georgia. I, from my nine to five, I'm in sales. I sell aviation technology. And then I also have a side hustle where I am an interpreter for the federal government, which we can talk about later, but that's, that's what I do on my free time, whatever time I can find as a single mom. I travel a lot because I'm in aviation. I love traveling. And I also train in jujitsu and learn new languages. So that's what I occupy my time. Amazing. I love it so much. And I've met your little one too. He's so dang cute. And I have to give you props. Like as somebody who grew up in a single mom household, that crap is hard. Like it is a lot. So my hat goes off to you for raising such a good human being. He's such a cutie. Thank you. I think I'm going to keep him. Yeah. (laughs) After eight years, like he might stick around. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I want to be him when I grow up too. So he knows that <laughs> he's a good kid. He really is a good kid. Thank you. I'm curious Thank a little you. bit about you and your background. So you grew up in Colombia, and you didn't move yes. to the states till a little bit later. Can you tell us about like how money was talked about in Colombia, maybe versus the states? I mean, the short answer to that is we didn't, and we still don't. Mm-hmm. When I try to talk to my family members today about finances. They feel so uncomfortable. So culturally, we're like maybe 50 years behind in what, you know, with women rights and all that, we don't really discuss money. And growing up, I had beef with money, if if I can describe it completely. Because in my culture, a lot of abuse is normalized in highly patriarchal societies. That's what happens. And I'm Colombian, but my family... I'm only second generation. My grandmothers were from Lebanon and I also have family from Italy and Spain. So if you combine all that, like it's like Latino reloaded a little bit in all like the values. And so just like emotional abuse is very intrinsic to our culture, financial abuse is too. And so a lot of women don't leave they're very unhappy marriages because of that financial parts and their partners now unfold it on top of them. So unfortunately, that's some of the example I grew up 
with. And so I grew up thinking that money was bad. Having money made you a bad person. Mm. Not because, not because inherently having money is bad or even using money is bad. It's because you get the more money you have, the more you get to manipulate people around you and keep them away from who they are. So I was always so afraid when I came to the States to be successful. It's a real fear of being successful because if you have a bad money story or a money story that prevents you from seeing money as a resource of opportunities and not as something that takes it away from you, you actively work at not having money, Hmm. which for my case, I actively, very actively worked in not having any money all of my twenties. Yeah. But um, so I came to the States when I was almost 19. I no almost 20. I came to the US with a Rotary International scholarship. Oh, cool. You see, what happened was I finished economics and mathematics in Colombia because although I hated math, it loved me back. And so I was very good at it. I really didn't want to like make an effort in school. And so I chose the easy route, which was economics and math. It would have been more difficult for me to be like in the liberal arts. Oh my gosh, that would have been, that would have been the worst. And also because I'm not like math and econ, I don't really have to feel to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And I was also actively working at not feeling because I was going through depression and anxiety, which I didn't know at the time. Because also in Colombia, we don't talk about mental health. It makes you a crazy person if you seek help, which is an an awful, (laughs) that's awful. So, and I'm not saying Colombian people are inherently bad. It's just that our values are a little warped. We're a little warped. I'd like to say it's part of our charm. I don't find it charming, but to each their own. (laughs) So I came when I was almost 20. My dad, I was like, I don't want to like be here. I want to study something else. Like mm. two weeks before graduation, I was like, I don't want to do anything with this. I don't want to be looking at computers all my life. I, wow. I want to talk to people. And my dad was like, I already paid for college in, in Colombia. So you're going to have to, if you want to do something else, find scholarships, which to normal kids, that would be like, oh man, I can't do anything about it. What Laura at 19 heard was challenge accepted. Oh my and God. So I Googled, <laughs> I Googled scholarships in the United States and I applied to the first 10 in Google and I got nine of them. So I just cho- chose like the better one. <laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. So I knew that if my parents had the ability, I waited till I turned, like, till I knew that it was legal and all that, had all my paperwork from like turning 18, 19, and I laid it out because that meant I was a real adult. So I didn't have to ask for permission to go anywhere. And I also waited until I have had enough money to pay for my ticket to go to the US because that's the only thing that obviously the scholarship didn't cover. And I presented my parents with an official letter letting them know that I was leaving. Stop it. (laughs) A month before I left. Now, you need to understand women in Latin America don't leave their household until they're married. Oh, interesting. Um, So you go from like your twin bed to a queen bed. Yeah. (laughs) In like a day. Huh. And so I got so much hate mail when I left Colombia from people that I knew 
telling me like, oh, you shouldn't have left. That's not what a nice lady does, blah, 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 blah. And the first thing I thought, because I was just so uninterested in their opinion about my academics, I was like, wow, they know how to use a computer. I'm proud of them. <laughs> good, good job, guys. <laughs> Way to yeah, go. I was like, well, you know how to type? I'm so proud of you. So that was my first thought. But I presented them with a letter and I said, listen, guys, I got a full ride. And so I'm leaving. I just want to let you know, thank you for everything you've done for me, but it's time for me now. Let me tell you something. I think my mom is still mad that I left because I'm the oldest one. Yeah. My parents had a lot of dreams for me. Like, I think the, one of the mistakes that parents make is that they try to raise their children to live the life that they could not live for themselves. And my parents were no different. So like my dad wanted me to be like this huge scholar. And then my mom wanted me to be like this classy, feminine person. And, you know, I think I became the version of that that I saw for myself. It's just that po it's possibly not the version of me that they saw for themselves. Yeah, no doubt, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I left. Like, I was only, I was given permission to leave starting July 20th. And I left July 21st. I could have left any other time. But I, now as a grown-up, if you will, I see that I wasn't only trying to seek better opportunities, but I was trying to escape my environment in Colombia because I felt inherently that something was not right with me mm -hmm. since early my teenage years. And I knew that if I stayed in Colombia, I felt like if I stayed in Colombia, that wouldn't that like I would never be able to find that what that thing was that makes sense so that's um a little bit about how I came here and I stayed and I never went back that's insane <laughs> I can't even imagine leaving I mean okay leaving my house was very exciting when I was 19 right but it was not going to another country and being like okay I don't know anybody here like that's so Wild, were you scared when you made that move over to the States? No, life hurt a lot back then. I had a lot of emotional, neurological things going on, and I wasn't in the best macro or micro environment. Sure. I experienced a lot of bullying in Colombia because when you're different, you're not told being different to school. Because whilst other friends or people that I knew were smoking and partying and doing all those things, I was like, learning languages and going to the theater and doing competitive dancing. Like I never had what people have normalized as being cool in a box. Mm -hmm. I never belonged in this box. The only box I know personally is the Amazon boxes I got during the pandemic. That's it. Like I have never belonged in a box ever. So it wasn't scary because I was nothing could have been scarier or more painful than what I was already living. Mm. So for me, for me, the kind of fear and pain that I was about to go through was something that was manageable to me versus what was unmanageable where I was living. So, so sense. yes, but no. Yeah, <laughs> totally fair. I, I don't mind to yeah. pry, but I know you mentioned depression and anxiety was kind of a common yeah thing for you did that start in childhood is that like when was it like from school bullying or just like environmental like when did you notice like mental health stuff starting for you I always felt like I was a pretty hyperactive child yeah but I I think that 
for most, and you talked about how I'm self-aware. I still remember the first time ever that I felt anxiety. It was a Saturday at 9 a.m. I was seven years old. I was in the middle of a piano class. My dad signed me for, I freaking hated the piano, but he wanted me to play the piano and I wanted him to like me because it seemed like he didn't. So I was sitting there at 9 a.m. I wanted to sleep with like the mom of a friend of mine who was my piano teacher. And I remember feeling paralyzed. Like if an elephant sat with one butt cheek on my chest and not two. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's <well>. how, that, <laughs> that's that, honestly, analogy. that's how it felt. And then I remember being like 13 and 14 and feeling kind of odd in my own body. Like, oh, I don't know what's happening. And I remember my mom, um, organizing my sweet 16, which she gave me the option of a party or going on a trip. And I said trip, but she never had a party. So we ended up doing the party. It was a mommyocracy and not a Lauraocracy. Yeah, totally. Sense. Um, and I remember talking to her about this party and like the level of depression, like the just sadness and, you know, sadness is part of the symptomatic the symptoms of, of depression, but a lot of people are like, Oh, you're sad. You're depressed. No, like I wish I was sad. Honestly, give me sad any day. Yeah. It's like this thing in your bones. Like you feel sad in your brain, sad in your heart, even your skin feels sad. Like you feel like you weigh probably 10 or 20 kilos more. I think in kilos, sorry guys, but <laughs> then you 50 pounds, sorry, 50 pounds. <laughs> what I do is so, so I remember being 15 and feeling depression and seven and feeling anxiety. I just didn't have words for it. And I think that that's why I actually learned languages hmm. because I didn't feel like I had enough words in Spanish, which is my first language, to express how I felt. And I actually found recovery and healing through English. So, which is a whole other aspect of that. But yes, it started very young. Most people have that have it on a neurological level, which is what I have. There's a chemical imbalance and neurological imbalance. Feel it very early because it's an electrical impulse problem. It's not a hormonal kind of thing alone. So I did know from the start, it just got exponentially worse when I came to the States. I thought that it was going to get better, but I don't know if you know this, but you carry your trauma with you. And so like, nobody told me that part. Yeah. So, so me neither. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> nobody told me that part. So that was, that's kind of like my journey. I didn't actually get diagnosed with depression and anxiety until I was 30 years old. Interesting. Okay. So this is fascinating to me when people finally get officially diagnosed. Cause I, I usually have found that people have this almost fork in the road moment where they seek help. And that's generally when yeah. they get diagnosed. So I'm curious for you, what was going on in your life where you finally were like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go talk to somebody. Something's not quite right. So I had just gone through a divorce. It was, I was, I had just turned 30 you know how they tell you don't have children to fix our relationship? 100%, yeah. Don't buy a house trying to fix our relationship either. Don't do it. Like, that's my that's my first advice to That's good advice, actually, it really is. 
if you have to do something in order to fix a relationship you're in, stop, think, and then go ahead and do it. Because I bought a house. My ex-husband really, my ex-husband talking about values. He really wanted the, the white picket fence and like the house and the cars, very materialistic, which is something that I do find about American culture that is very different from Colombian culture is that mm. we're more family focused and time focused and that structure focused than we necessarily are about material things. And I, I honestly have had to fix my own perception about things because I honestly think most of my friends should belong in an episode of Hoarders, but I'm also a minimalist. So like, I don't fair. count. Totally <laughs> so, fair. So he really wanted all those things. And I thought our unhappiness as a couple came from that. And then when we bought the house and I felt, you know, when they give you the keys to the house, it's normally supposed to be a really exciting moment. I was the first person to buy a house in my family. Like, by, like it was a huge moment. I felt like I had just been handed the hat, like the keys of like a prison of my own making. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt. Because obviously now in, in hindsight, I was doing it for the wrong reasons, but I went through that and I, you know, I asked the universe to send me some signals. Honestly, don't ask God for signals if you don't want to get slapped. No doubt. And I got slapped and I demanded a divorce in December of 2020, left my ex-husband everything with like the cars, the house and all that. Cause I was like, these are all things that you want. Not that I wanted. So I found myself at almost 31 starting over alone in a foreign land. It's the first time that I've really felt like that loneliness. I never mm-hmm. felt lonely, but going through that alone and then having to spring clean my life, if you will, since I moved in spring, I like to say spring cleaning my life. So I dropped friends. I dropped things. The only thing that I carried with me from that life was clothing and makeup. Makeup expires. And I also lost 50 pounds in the year that I divorced. So basically, I have nothing from my past life. Actually, I do. I have a set of five pound dumbbells. <laughs> dumbbells? <laughs> yeah, Priorities, man. <laughs> now, that I, now that I think about it, that. Um, that was going on. Also, in the middle of me transitioning, fell in love for the first time in my life. I'm not going to elaborate on that that much, but like I was experiencing two kinds of heartbreaks at the same time because that didn't work out and it was one of my best friends too. So that happened. And one Thursday morning at 6 a.m., I couldn't stop crying. Hmm. Just couldn't stop crying. I had eaten all my snacks. I had had the water that Google told me I needed to have in order to like feel less depressed, which is my favorite. <laughs> the things that Google tells you to feel less depressed. Totally. And or WebMD, like any any hypochondriac knows that WebMD is our friend. So <laughs> me too. But I uh, I found myself at 6 a.m. crying nonstop. I needed to take my kids to school. And my kid, six-year-old with his big eyes, looked at me and said, Mommy, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Oh, God. In that moment, I saw in my child's eyes me at seven-year-old and me having an opportunity from the universe to, to give another version of me a better, a better future than what I had emotionally. 
And I've never really wanted like a super smart child because honestly, newsflash, you're not going to get the better jobs or the better life through education. You're going to get it through skill set. And those are two different things. All I wanted to have was an emotionally intelligent child. And that wasn't going to happen if I didn't get it together. So I dropped him, dropped him off at school, called his dad. And I said, hey, I'm going to check myself in a hospital. And I just need you. I just need you to take care of him for five, six days. Now, my ex-husband and I have probably the most atypical ex-relationship because I talk to him more now than I did when we lived in the same property. Mm. And so... And so we're talking all the time. And all he said was, do what you got to do. I know you've been dealing with this for a long time. So just, just know that I'm here for you. That's cool. Um, this, was, this was also in the same week that it was my son's birthday. So oh, that was so you tough. know just really hard. It's really, really tough. So I checked myself in a mental hospital. Yeah. Like self-checking. Now, what they don't tell you is that you can't leave after a day, which is what I wanted to do. And I didn't bring any clothing and I didn't bring any toiletries. I really didn't think that through, but I'm glad I didn't because I wouldn't have stayed the amount of time I needed to stay. What did you you learn in in there? Like what were some of the skills that they were, I presume it was mostly coping mechanisms. Is that the case? So... Where I went was, it's like a publicly funded mental hospital. Yeah, I learned so much in there. I think that it humanized me. I had, how can I say this? I had been in my little bubble where I thought that no one struggled with the things I did because no one in my life was talking about things that I was going through. <clears throat> one of the things that I realized in being in there is that Depression and anxiety doesn't care about your socioeconomic status. It doesn't care about your gender, your age, your color. You will all struggle with the same things. It all looks the same. It's just that it's triggered from different trauma. Hmm. And it just, it just made me feel like a person for the first time where I didn't have to pretend like I was okay because everybody there was mainly there because they were not okay. There's also a lot of homeless people in these, you know, in these places that maybe they're not crazy or unstable guys. Maybe they're just hungry or cold. You know what I'm saying? Like totally. So, and I also realized that I had an incredible ability. I didn't know what my purpose was. And that was kind of like the first step into discovering my purpose, that there were a lot of foreign people. Interesting. As there were a lot of foreign people in, in the staff, not in the sick people, in the staff. And I speak a couple languages. And so I was I I almost like was there to advocate for the other patients because they would like some of the staff would pretend not everyone, but some of the staff would pretend like they didn't understand what they were talking about. The American people or like the people that were on the floor as sick people. And me, I was kind of naive and I'm happy I was. I thought it was a language problem. So I remember there was a lady that was, she, her first language is French and she 
was just like not understanding what the person was asking her for, which was more medicine. And when you're manic, which is what this person was, you are not expressing correctly your feelings. Mm -hmm. And so I took her aside. I was like, hey, I speak French. Can you just tell me what you need and all that? And then I went to the window and I was like, hey, can, can you come here? I think first I thought it was an expression problem. And so I conveyed what needed to be said. And this lady kind of looked at me like I had grown a second head. And then when I said the same thing, it was like, oh, sorry, pardon. I probably should say this in French. And so I said it in French. And it's incredible how me changing the language gave her a different level of respect for me just because I was mm. educated. <laughs> yeah. And so I realized the power I had within the place to make a change for those people. And actually, I still talk to some of the patients oh, from awesome. the hospital. So that's kind of like the start of what I did. But it was mainly my kid telling me, hey, what did I do wrong? Absolutely nothing. Oh, yeah, I took the step. I, I took the step that I wish my grownups would have taken in resolving their own traumas that, that they didn't. So that's what, what made me check in. And in the hospital, they diagnosed me. And I was so nervous and taking medicine because there's a lot of shame around taking medicine. Where I'm oh, from. yeah, for sure there is. There's like, oh, you're crazy or you're this or you're that. And <clears throat> back then, I kind of felt shame. But now, uh, when people say things like that, I use those moments to make them teachable moments for everyone involved. Good. <laughs> so. well, no, you're right. Because there is there's so much shame around taking medication, like there's something wrong with you instead of viewing mm -hmm. it. Like we would never shame somebody. I mean, I hope we would never shame somebody if they have mm -hmm. cancer and they're going through chemo. Like we'd never be like, Oh, I can't believe there's something wrong with you. Like it's their for like diabetes. Yeah, totally. But yeah. Mental health. It just seems like it's so different. There's such a stigma around that. No. And a lot of people think that it's like a hormonal imbalance or a chemical imbalance. There are many ways to have depression. True. It can be a neurological imbalance where your brain, your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system are not connecting and talking to each other. Mm -hmm. So the impulses that there's a break, it's kind of like if the electrical system in your house turns some lights on in some rooms and then some parts completely forgotten. So you have to cook in the dark kind of thing. Yep. So kind of like that. And then Normally, people have either or neurological or chemical. I happen to be very blessed in that I was loved so much by the universe that I was given both. Oh, <laughs> so how how lucky. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> so I have two diagnoses. I have major depressive disorder, which stems from the neurological imbalance. And then I have PMDD, which is premenstrual depressive disorder, which obviously most women get this. Um, when they get it, it's only women. And it, what it is is that your progesterone drops so much mid-cycle or right before your cycle that your anxiety levels and your depression level go up. Mm. So PMDD happens with both depression and anxiety. But here's the kicker that for some, most women go through this, but for some people is a paralyzing experience where they can think, they can sleep. It's just like they're frozen in time. And mm. that is what used to happen to me. So instead of taking one medicine, I take two to deal with both. Yeah. Both things. That yeah. makes a ton of sense. So I, I know you and I have had a lot of conversations around 
trauma and money stories and how we both agree that mental health isn't talked about nearly as much as it should, especially in how it affects our finances. And yeah. you've got this really great theory that I think is so amazing where you believe that we can heal our trauma through focusing on our finances. And at least that was somewhat your yes. experience. So let's talk about this. How the heck were you able to start healing your trauma through money? So when I seek you out to be my financial coach, I remember you were like, I need to see your budget sheet. And I was like, but is there a way that I like cannot see my budget sheet? Can you see it and me not see it? Kind of like oh, your way to the doctor. <laughs> kind of like your way at the doctor, because I'm like, I just don't want to face that I know I have a problem. And that's yeah. when you have depression and anxiety, you create systems around your life so that you don't have to feel depression or anxiety. And I had just come out of a mental hospital, was trying to figure out the dosage of my medicine, which I actually didn't figure out until like early September last year, which it took me two years to figure out what the heck was happening. And I also got diagnosed that same year with something called HSDD, which we can talk about as well, if you would like it. But it, I, I was just like budget sheet. You mean I have to look at the reality of my numbers after my divorce and see how much I'm basically sucking at life? No, no, I'm not today, Satan. I'm not. <laughs> I do not. I think it took like two whole sessions before I actually was like, all right, Laura. Now at the time I used to drink alcohol. So what you don't know is that I had two shots of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> before oh my doing goodness. My- because I was just like not in a place where I could even accept it to myself. Now, yes. once I wrote the numbers, I was like, oh, it could be worse. Like in my head, I completely catastrophized where I was at because that's the story the world tells single moms. Yeah, totally. Like when you're alone and you don't have money and you're this rap- like Rapunzel person that needs to be rescued. Like I let society dictate where I was at financially when I hadn't even really looked at the numbers. Mm -hmm. So I started the first months. I started kind of like the first six months. I remember, okay, let me just digest that this is the pill where I'm at and that I had a hand in getting me through this place in life, because I think it's really dangerous when we're like, and you did this to me and you did that to me. Like, you know, like Oprah, but with trauma a little bit, totally. but we don't take, we don't take responsibility for maybe I had a little bit of a hand sure. in our own, in my own pain. Oh man. It took me so long to be able to get to that place where I didn't shame myself for having a hand at it. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Right. That's I so didn't true. know. So, um, so the first six months I was like, okay, let me look at this mess <laughs> clearly. And then in 2021, I started paying debt. So I organized my goals. First, I needed to get the, I wanted to have a little, like at least a thousand dollars in my savings account. And um, when I hit that thousand, I was like, okay, I'm still a good person. So this is good. I'm still a good person because I was just under this impression that if I had a thousand dollars, man, I was going to become like Scrooge. Like that's totally. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, I'm still a good person. And every time I put a little bit more money, now I'm like, I'm an incredible person. And now you're like investing <laughs> on your own and like kicking butt. Yeah. 
Yeah, but at the beginning, it was just like every time I put money in the account, I checked in with myself to see if I was still a good person. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which, you know, I still, now I think it's funny, but back then I was like, why am I feeling this way? And then in, in realizing I was feeling something I hadn't felt, I got curious about the feelings slowly but surely that I was experiencing. Because something that you develop when you have depression and anxiety is something called alexithymia, which is the inability of recognizing your feelings. So what happens is that your amygdala gets so big and you're always in like fight or flight mode that it takes space from your limbic system and your frontal lobe. So you miss the opportunity of learning new communication skills, learning new skill sets, and being able to recognize your feelings. So happiness, anxiety, stress, anxiety, sadness, depression, peace, depression. Like my life gyrated around two feelings and that was depressed and anxious. And if I was feeling peace, that was less depressed. Mm -hmm. And if I was feeling less stressed, that was less anxious. I didn't even know. Um, and, and yeah, so I, um, I was just like, okay, I'm feeling a thing that I've never felt because in learning about my finances, I stimulated a part of my frontal cortex that hadn't been stimulated in a really long time. And so through finances, I relearned how to learn. Oh, that's so, so that was the first step. I was losing my native language. I couldn't remember words in my own native language. And ever since I started doing that in 2020, I've learned three new languages that I speak fluently. And so I'm like, I can't, I can't, I could have been, you know, and I could have, would have, should have, but I'm like, man, I have this incredible ability to learn languages and I would have never discover that if I wouldn't have looked at my finances and realized that I had a lot to learn and discovered that ambition for learning and going after the things that I was interested in. So also when I was paying down debt, each debt represented something in my life. There's this debt that I will not name the credit card. He who shall not be named. We call it the Voldemort it card. <laughs> the Voldemort card. Um, it was the lowest debt I had mind you. Yeah. But it was the debt that like made the most weight in my heart because mm -hmm. I knew why I got it. I knew in that moment what I was going through in life when I got that card. And so for me, paying off that card meant that I could let go of the pain of why I had to get it and give it kind of like a new story where I could start using it in the way in which it was, I should have been intending to use it. But I also think that in one of the things that I've realized is that financial institutions bank on consumers being dumb. And so they spread credit cards like hot potatoes and you'll get a credit card and you'll get a credit card. And they don't explain their responsibility behind it. It's not free money. No. In fact, you're paying for the same thing twice because you have to pay through your credit card and then you have to pay it to the credit card. So I started doing that. Uh, and mind you, I just got a credit increase in that card and I laughed. I laughed so hard this morning. When that, <laughs> that was this so morning? Like, yeah, that was this morning. I was like, you guys are really desperate for my business and I'm really desperate to not give you any. <laughs> so, never again. Never again. Never again. 
So, so uh, my journey up today, I've paid, I've paid, I looked at the numbers. I've looked at my budget sheet with Mimi Proud. You look um, at your budget sheet all the time now. <laughs> you like live in it. I, I know do. you do. I'm like, um, best, we're besties for the resties now, but I've paid 45% of all my debt since January, 2021. Way to go. Um, and it took me figuring out my addictions to instant gratification and yeah. what that looked like. It took me processing trauma. It took me realizing where, where I could cut some things because a lot of people don't, in looking at the miscellaneous expenses, there were a lot of things that I was spending money on and I started noticing patterns of expense and keeping track of it on my phone. Of what was I feeling when I spent this? Which it's so smart. I know that, that I know that a lot of people just creating the notepad for me was like a whole journey of a week having anxiety. Sure. Because there's nothing harder than facing yourself. Nothing harder. It's easier to face people and the world than it is to face yourself because you can't escape yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so I had to sit down with me and be like, okay, I've tried Laura with pain. I've tried to skip you. I've tried to avoid you. I did that for 30 years. How about if I look at you in the face? Can't be worse than what I've been doing. True. So, so, you know, by process of elimination, little by little kind of trekked. And I still have work to do. I still have a lot of ambitions and passion and all that. But I see opportunities and I see healing where I didn't see any beforehand. It's all because I started working on my finances. I love this so much because I think so many times we hear, we hear, here's what you should do. Get your emergency fund in place, create a budget, live on your budget. Oh my God. But it it's so simplistic advice that it's almost unfortunate and unfair because it doesn't take into the consideration the nuance of when when we have bad days, when we feel like crap, when we're going through periods of depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, when we lose somebody we care about, whenever those mm-hmm. situations come up, it a hundred percent affects our finances. I see it on hundreds of budgets. It is a very yes. big issue. I'm curious for yeah. you, how, how did you see, or did you see any like mental health? Like when things would flare up, like maybe like depression or anxiety would flare up even more than normal. Did it affect your spending? And if so, in what way? Oh, Whitney, that's a great question. (laughs) So at first I Googled like, okay, how do I pay debt? And obviously Dave Ramsey came into it with the debt snowball. I tried doing that, but that gave me anxiety. And now I think of anxiety and depression as very high alert systems that tell me when something is wrong Hmm. because I need it. Depression and anxiety are not going anywhere. The medicine sorry guys, it's not supposed to do the work for you. It's supposed to take the edge off. You still have to do the trauma work. So every time I'm like, if you are giving my anxiety extra work, then the problem is you and not me Mm -hmm. because I take medicine. So I don't know what your problem is. So I looked at my budget sheet. I was like, nope, this is not the right thing for me. And I had to acknowledge that what was good for other people was not going to be good for me. So I did death snowball. That was not for me. I did the avalanche, depth mm-hmm. avalanche that I've heard about. Definitely not for me. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to create my own system, Whitney, 
where I was like, you know what? My life revolves around depression and anxiety. And so I'm going to do an emotional death snowball where I organize from highest level of anxiety to lowest level of anxiety. So and good. that's how I paid it. It's so <laughs> because, good. Because this credit card, even though this was the maybe second or third smallest debt, was giving me way more anxiety. And the fact, what gave me anxiety was knowing that it was number three and I had another two to cover mm-hmm. and that I wasn't going to be at peace until I could cover those two. And for some people that creates a level of urgency, for me, it almost threw me into paralysis. Mm. And so I was like, no, 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 no. So I organized all these and that's how I was able to pay 45% of my debt. That's impressive. I think this is such a good strategy. So the emotional snowball, debt snowball. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, I, I call it the emotional death snowball. I well, my kid said that it was the emotional currency snowball because I Get actually out. do my You're budget eight-year-old. with him. <laughs> yeah, because I sit down with him and he we are both avid Monopoly fans, so no one should play us in Monopoly. We are oh man, no terrible. Man. I completely I completely forget that I'm a mom and he for, <laughs> completely forgets that he's my son. And we just <laughs> I will crush you, kid. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. And he's like, watch me go, mom. I'm like, oh, my gosh. We should not. (laughs) Nobody should release us into the ether. But um, yeah, so he was like, mommy, what you do is that you give you give like a value to each like each debt. And then you go from high to low. And I'm like, oh, my God, you should explain this to everyone. That's so cute. Because personal finances are personal. And your life is based on your emotional experiences and your physical experiences and intellectual experience. So even though I think the depth snowball and depth avalanche are great for people that feel like it's great, this is me giving permission to the world to acknowledge that those systems may be bogus for you because it's personal finance. So like forget the interest, forget the, the like amount of the debt you go for the one that gives you the most anxiety because you will feel more accomplished when you deal with those debts and then the rest won't be as scary. Ooh, amen. You know, I've got this theory and I'm totally hundred percent with you too. I started observing this maybe a year and a half ago after working with a bunch of clients. And what I started to learn is I don't think that people want to avoid their finances directly. I think it's just very triggering for them. And absolutely. Like, did you find that for yourself too? Like, is it, oh when my you looked God. at it, you're like, dude, I suck. Like, was it just a spiral? Oh my God. I mean, it sent me, I was so confused as to why a financial issue was sending me into an emotional spiral because yeah. they're supposed to be two different experiences. And so that's when I realized hmm, maybe I, my emotions are tied to my finances. Who knew? And one of the things that I find that I still work on is that when I'm not going as fast as I want to go, because I'm a pretty successful person in my own life, I get like, man, I'm not advancing. So I have to look at the Carfax, basically like my budget sheet where I'm like, I paid 45% of my debt. I literally almost double my retirement money from 2021 to 2022, like 150% and all that. I wasn't even putting money in my 401k until 2020. I started investing, which my Vanguard account reminded me that we've been friends like this week 
for a year now. I'm like, girl. Has it been a year now? <laughs> yeah, it's been a year. Oh my I'm gosh, like, congrats. Girl, we're tight. We're, now we're tight though. But a yeah. year before I was like, nope. <laughs> it's scary. Uh, it is scary because I think the, the world t- tells you like if something's scary or hard, go for the instant gratification and do that and not not this so I had to like get rid of the easy buttons like I sobered up I stopped drinking I've been sober for almost three years now thank you um I started cleaning my pantry where I was like all this food here just triggers my bulimia so I'm going to close my eyes and shut up the voice in my mind that tells me that that's money and I'm throwing it away Mm. and I'm just gonna toss it in the trash can so I started to well I started like the more you do little things for yourself and recognize how good that feels and how peaceful the experience of loving yourself is. Because everybody told me that it's supposed to be like joyful and happy and blah, blah, blah. Loving yourself is just peace. Loving yourself for a person that has depression is not ruminating. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So for me, it was like, oh, I did that thing. I said no to a thing that I normally would have said yes. Now no is my favorite word. But back then, it was not. So it's like, oh, I stood up for myself. Let's do that again. I loved how that felt. And so I started doing little things to show myself how much more I could love myself. And I showed myself slowly but surely that the only support and validation I ever needed lived inside of me and not outside of me. Hmm. You know what I mean? But that started because I looked at my finances, which meant looking at my life, basically, in front of my eyes and acknowledging what was working and what wasn't because the data was in front of me. Yeah. And it may take you a day. It may take you a week. It took me five months. It's fine to look at the data and be like, oh, fine. Me not having this together doesn't mean I'm a bad person or I suck or I'm guilty myself. Yeah. The shame, you know, like all the shame that's attached to finances. Mm-hmm. Specifically around um, debt too. It's crazy. Yeah. Getting rid of the debt slowly but surely has allowed me to also get rid of the shame and make space for better feelings because now I do have the bandwidth emotionally to accept other feelings in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's really translated into better friendships, better quality of life, and less shame overall, over everything, over my story, even over my parents. I had a lot of resentment towards my parents and I've been able to humanize them in the process, which I never thought was going to happen, but, but here we are. So it's powerful. Uh, it is, but I understand how hard it is, you know? Yeah. So now what I do with my time is I volunteer a lot. So. So that's how I pay pay it back, if you will. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, because I know that this has become something that's been almost your driving force for financial independence and just getting kind of your money shit together is I'm going to do this so that I can then give back to people that need help as well. So tell us a little bit about when you had that realization that money isn't just about having a good life for ourselves and buying that sweet house or that nice car it's actually a bigger purpose or can be. So before I talk about it, I have to talk about something really serious. 
and it makes me emotional. I'm not going to apologize for it, but I do understand that a lot of people are still going through some processes for themselves. And so this is me giving them permission to forward this <laughs> for like maybe two minutes <laughs> because I'm about to talk about child loss. <clears throat> so in 2011, around Easter, I was 22 weeks pregnant. I didn't know I was 22 weeks pregnant and I lost my first child. Mm. Um, it was a boy. A lot of people don't tell you that when you are really far ahead into your process, if you will, into your pregnancy, your body still thinks you're pregnant. So I still had to push the baby out. Like if it was a full on birth God, and I nice. still did peripartum, which is depression during pregnancy mm. and then postpartum, which I'm so glad people talk about that now. Mm. You still produce milk, which was a whole discovery and your body goes through the changes of a mother. And so I, and I was told that I couldn't have another kid after mm. that, or that the chances of me having another kid would be really small. And then a year and a half later, I got pregnant with my son and I, we were told basically the day that I was going to give birth because I, I again knew that I didn't have something right in my body because my stats didn't look okay. And I'm a numbers and data person. So those numbers looked weird. The enzymes looked weird. Yeah. And because I struggled with bulimia for so long, which is part of my journey of living in Colombia is how I coped. I created something called enzymatic liver, which is when basically your liver decides to peace out and say like, I don't want to work anymore. So my bile was get, not getting filtered by my liver. Oh and my so God. the bile was not being filtered. I'm, I'm getting poisoned by my own body and my child. Oh, wow. So I got pregnant with Frederick. I literally wrote my will um, well, being five centimeters dilated in the hospital, <clears throat> did 46 hours of labor. 1010 do not recommend, but hours? 46 hours. I did this. I tell people that I've done all my labor hours in one lifetime. That should have been three children, yeah, statistically, no but I am going to have one because I'm, I ran out of my credit limit on birth hours. Yes. Oh my God. Jeez. And so we, he had, I had statistically, I had like a 60 something percent chance of not making it. And he had a 45% chance of being a stillborn. Oh, I wasn't wow. offered a C-section because I wasn't coagulating. So I, I pushed him out and that was kind of like my second chance of being a mom. And so mm. that explains a lot why I have such an incredible bond with my yeah. child. My child, my child tells his friends that I am his legal representative. <laughs> is that what he says? <laughs> yes. That's so cute. Like, my mom is my mom and she's also my legal representative. I'm like, oh, Frederick. <laughs> and it's true. Like he's completely right. I'm obsessed with him. Now I will be paying for this in about 10 years. <laughs> Yeah. But, nah. but um, yeah, I know, but he, he, I have a close bond with him, but all this to say that I had never, I had not grieved my first child because I felt a lot of shame that my, that what I did to my own body was what caused mm. for my first child to 
now be born because I always wanted to be a mom. Right. Yep. And so I'd always gravitated towards children. Like for me, the definition of heaven is going to be like a ton of food, carbs preferably, and a ton of Frenchies and babies. That is going to be. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of heaven too. Add some cheese yeah, on there. Like, <laughs> bring it. Like, um, so during the pandemic, I was going still through like the depression. Now I didn't wait for a pandemic to tell me that I needed to put myself in check. I like to say that I started before that, but I wanted to get myself out of the funk. And I remember that when I was younger, I have this thing in my phone called self-care. And I started writing all the things that used to make me happy when I was younger and started doing those things so that I knew how to do self-care whenever I was depressed or anxious. And one of the things that I always loved was playing with babies. And that phrase kept coming up in my front, in my head. Like I couldn't let it go. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can't just go to a daycare and play with babies from strangers. Like that is not how it works. No, they'd be like, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's completely illegal. So, um, and I had, yeah, I had, um, I had things there like, roller skating and cooking, which I've discovered I'm an incredible cook. And now I don't eat out, um, which is good because my guilty pleasure when I was depressed was grocery shopping. I remember. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was spending like $600 a month on food for my child and I. So like that, I mean, that's crazy. But I mean, at least in my book, I did not need to buy that much food. My apartment is not really that big. So I don't even know where I was putting all this stuff. (laughs) But I couldn't avoid the whole babies thing. And I said, well, how can I do this? So I Googled how to volunteer with babies. And so I saw that there were international volunteering opportunities. And I was like, what a great marriage. I speak languages. I love babies. And nobody's traveling to these countries to take care of babies because not a lot of people have the privilege of being able to travel. So I had a new incentive, right? So that happened like beginning of 2021. And I decided, okay, what do I need to go to this place? Now, mind you, I've never been alone on a trip by like buying everything, booking the hotel, like doing all these things. And, um, and you know, go big or go home. <laughs> but um, I started planning around it. So I started learning about Turkish culture. I started learning Turkish, which is the sixth language I learned. And and I just started working towards a common goal. And and so instead of paying for my debt, which which I could have done, mm-hmm. I took some of the money that I earned in my bonus that year to pay for a trip to Turkey. And I paid for my hotel. And I paid for a trip and that trip changed my life. I got to spend two and a half weeks with Turkish second, third, and fourth graders. I was supposed to have 24 children at the beginning. And the the children were just so ecstatic to see a foreign person wanting to like give them love for no reason. Cause they were just surprised because yeah. I'm very physical. I'd like to say that it's the Hispanic in me, but I just think it's the me in me. <laughs> and um, they told me, I learned that in Turkey, physical affection is not very 
it's not very popular oh. uh, amongst adults. And I'm like, well, that's not going to do because I'm Colombian. We kiss for no reason. So that's not going <laughs> to work. So we would do like breakfast hugs, lunch hugs, snack hugs, and before Aww, the end of the day cute. hugs. And so, and also fruit and water is really expensive. And so I look like one of those fruit ladies in like Central America every morning because I bought all the exotic, quote unquote, exotic fruit. That was like $20 for me. But it fed and gave hydration to 24 children for two weeks with me, two weeks. And so at the beginning, I had 24 children. And then by the end of the, of the two weeks, I had all the children in all the second, third and fourth grades mm-hmm. <laughs> because they just wanted to hang out. And I taught them Aww. in those workshops, emotional intelligence and self-defense for two weeks. That's incredible. Through film, through film. So we learned what a director does and a producer does. I did that volunteering with a good friend of mine who's a producer for Netflix. And so we got to make a video of their final product and we gave it to the parents. And so it's going to be like a, like a life experience. And I also had disabled children who also had anxiety that your disability was anxiety. And I was like, Oh God, I'm in on this. Like I'm ready for this. And Right. And so uh, anxiety is not an actual diagnosis in Turkey. And so, which was crazy to me because to me if you have a diagnosis, you have to create a medicine for it. Right. That's how it works. And so they didn't have the money to create a medicine for it. So oh. in the class, I had two children that had high anxiety disorders. And in talking to them, I taught them like breathing exercises. I taught him to breathe. And I still remember this little boy, Merdali. He, you know, he was interested in finances too. And you know what? He was one of the naughtiest kids and I probably should have despised him, but I should not choose a favorite, but he was like my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) You like the only honorary kids? (laughs) Yeah. And I would teach him about finances with like fruits and veggies and things like that. And he would teach me Turkish, but he told me sometimes I feel Peter Patter, Peter Patter, Mm. and they don't have words to describe those feelings Uh, in Turkish. But Turkish is very similar to French in the grammatical part. So I taught him the words in French to say what he was feeling. That's awesome. And so, because I was like, you don't have to know just Turkish, dude. Like I can't, you have options. That's all I'm saying. So we talked about it. I taught him how to breathe. And then like fourth or fifth day of, recording the film that we were doing mm-hmm. I decided to give him an actor role which would have been the opposite of what other people would have done but I was like listen this kid has a lot of energy what about it is not is just unused energy mm-hmm. what about if we stop telling people that depression and anxiety and the things that they're born with that they cannot change and you're going to live with are not weaknesses but strengths so I put my theory to work on a child sidebar (laughs) I thought about it later and I was like maybe I should have done that but he thrived his mom he was like a different baby and his mom had to go to school twice a week every week because he was struggling so much she called me a month afterwards imagine my surprise seeing a number from from Turkey during Christmas I'm like what is this um best Christmas present she was like I have not had to go back to school. And now he's leading groups because all he needed was an opportunity to lead. 
I'm like, shocker. He didn't have, he had anxiety, but instead of telling him there was something wrong with him, somebody told him he could use that energy to lead. Shocker. He was good. Can we do that more? (laughs) So I love that. I know that trip when you came back to was so impactful and it kind of, it changed a lot of the way you approached even money. I think now it's, it's almost like different phases. Phase one is how do I get out of a bad situation and just like get my head above water. And then phase two is like paying off your debt, starting to thrive a little bit. Phase three is I think really realizing that money is a tool to help others. And I think we all have to kind of go through that step system in order to get there. But I think it's so cool that you've got there. Yeah. I mean, I will say now it took 33 years to get here. And a lot of people are like, why do I have to go through this? But you know what? I think the pain I was given was a blessing. I think the pain I was giving was meant for me so that I could have a strong why for my purpose. And so now, you know, when people are like, oh, this is my goal. I want to retire early so I can do this. Mm-hmm. I could not connect with the wording of people. They're like, oh, I want to retire early to travel. I'm like, I already travel. I don't need to retire early for that. Right. Um, I want to retire early to, I don't know, X, Y, Z, invest in homes. I don't want to invest. You mean I have to deal with human beings on purpose? No. I don't want to do that. Pass. <laughs> Pass. I already take me- depression medicine. I'm not trying to increase my dosage. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, fine. And then, but I was like, you know what? I do want to retire early so I can travel around the world volunteering in low income needy communities. And that seems like a great spent of my time and money that's going to be used for a greater good. Because in Things cannot be just about me. Like as a person that lives with anxiety, I hate being the center of attention. Yeah. So I'm like, if it's not about me, but it's about giving back to someone else, then I can use that. I can use that as my strong why to retire early because I do want to retire early, but it's not for what other people would want to retire early. I knew that I wanted to. I just didn't know why. Mm, It sounds like that trip kind of changed a lot for you. I think that's really absolutely impactful. And it's such a good way to wrap up the conversation. It's just like really getting yeah. to the next level of learning how yeah. money can impact others. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, I have a little bit to, to do still, I still have a lot of life ahead of me, but I used to say it sucks that I have so much life ahead of me. And now you say I get to have more life ahead of me. And Aww. that's it. That's all I ever wanted. So that's beautiful. Laura, it's so much fun to hear your story more and get to learn from you. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. But before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. My first question for you is what is one purchase you've recently made that has made your life better? What is one purchase? Okay. I have to. Said okay. Totally. My $10 sandwich maker from Target. Because I used to see these commercials in Colombia of this cheese that stretches a lot. Now I know that they put like glue in that to make it look stretchier. I know it's terrible. But I I know it's a little bit of a bummer. But what I do is that I just put more cheese in it and then we all win, right? So, So so I like bought that. And then, um, I also miss how fruit tastes in Colombia. And so I bought 
a juice, like an orange juice maker, like the one that has like the little head and you like do the, you know. So I bought that to have fresh orange juice every day for my son because orange juice here tastes very different. And so I miss like normal orange juice from where I grew up. (laughs) And it was 20 bucks. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Next question for you. Where is one location you're dying to travel to? You know what? I'm very blessed that, um, that I get to travel wherever I want, whenever I want. So my answer to that is going to be, I want to go everywhere and nowhere at all. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Next question for you. What is one book you find yourself gifting most often? The Body Keeps the Score. It's a book that is a hefty read, and it, but it's one of those books that you're going to have to take chapter by chapter because once you start understanding how, how your trauma is stored in your body and how you're not crazy, it's just that you're still reliving your trauma. Uh, it's going to make so much sense to you and your own body, but it, there were a lot of huge pills to swallow. And so... I gifted a lot. Uh, I gifted it to most of my friends during Christmas and I still get calls from them saying, I finished the book. That's all I need to know. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> they need to tell me. So I, I highly, if, if you're trying to figure yourself out and from a physiological and electric and just hormonal level, that book will be a huge eye opener to hear. Okay. Last question for you. This one's a biggie. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Curiosity and courage. Curiosity and courage. You have to get curious about the data, curious about who you are. And then, you know, don't take the two shots to kill that I did, but, (laughs) but get courageous about taking the next steps because you're worth it. Oh, that's beautiful. Laura, it's always so fun to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on here, being so vulnerable and sharing a little bit about a topic that affects our finances that we very rarely go into detail on. So I'm really grateful for your, your vulnerability today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the space. Okay. What'd you think? I love this episode. I think Laura is really sweet for being so vulnerable and open with really tough subjects that a lot of people avoid. I know she's really passionate about talking about how mental health stuff can affect our finances and our everyday life and how for some people that do struggle with mental health, this is an even harder thing to approach a budget or paying off debt or saving. It's a really difficult thing. So I am really proud and happy that she was willing to share so much information and give us a different perspective that we generally don't hear. That is it for today. If you have enjoyed this episode, do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review and share it with one person that you think it might help. It means the world to me. And I know it means a lot to Laura as well to get this message in front of more people. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye.